0: Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Roggio. A quick note, this episode was recorded at 12 noon Eastern on Friday, February 2nd. Since recording, the U.S. has launched strikes against Iran's proxy militias in Iraq and Syria. We will not know the scope and impact of the strikes for days, if not longer. The discussion of the nature of the U.S. strikes, whether they will be symbolic or part of a real effort to get Iran to call off its proxies, remains relevant. A senior Fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the long war. Today, as promised, Bradley Bowman, the senior director for the Center on Military and Political Power at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, is joining us. He focuses on U.S. defense strategy and policy, previously served as a national security advisor to members of the Senate Armed Services and foreign relations committees, as well as an active duty U.S. Army officer, a Black Hawk pilot, really cool, and assistant professor at West Point. Brad, welcome back to Generation Jihad. I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. Welcome to Generation Jihad, Brad.
1: Bill, thanks for having me back. I I really enjoyed our conversation on Monday, and I'm looking forward to this one too.
0: I I did as well, Brad. Your insights are are greatly valued uh, by me and and many others. It's been almost a week since Iran Iranian proxies, launched an attack on a US the attack was in, in Jordan at a US base in Jordan of all places and killed three American soldiers um, there's so many attacks i'm getting them confused uh, over what over 160 now right Is that correct? over
1: 165 attacks on our forces in Iraq and Syria and now Jordan since October 17th absolutely
0: absolutely amazing and it seems that for the administration to I think what it it perceives as being providing a meaningful response to these attacks. It took the death of three American soldiers. Uh, Yesterday, uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin gave a press briefing at the Pentagon, and he continued with the administration line that we are not at war with Iran, despite the fact that Iranian proxies have launched 165 attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq, Syria, and now Jordan and the Houthis. Or have launched a series of attacks against not only uh, international shipping, but U.S., British and French warships. It's almost the, the conflict there is daily at this point in time. But Brad, so that, I'm going to ask you the first question. Are are we at war with Iran or not?
1: Short answer, I would say is yes. Um, you know, when I taught Bill at West Point many years ago, um, one of my most common criticisms of cadet arguments or cadet, cadet research papers was, a failure to define your terms, right? If you, one has to define your terms, if you're going to have a, a serious conversation and we could talk for three hours about what is war and what is not. But, um, you know, uh, to kind of keep it real here, I'd say, generally speaking, if someone is systematically trying to kill you, <laughs> that's a probably a good sign that you're in some form of a war. And so by that definition, you know, we could quibble with the details on that definition, but let, let's use that for the sake of conversation. I'd say we've basically been in some form of war with the Islamic Republic of Iran since 1979. It waxes and wanes, depending on what that radical regime is doing in a given moment. But, you know, let's just a quick uh, uh tour through the, the region. We got what the Vice Admiral Brad Cooper, um, the uh, top naval officer in the Middle East, called the most significant attack on uh, freedom of navigation in two generations, uh, uh, uh courtesy the Iran-backed Houthis. And we had... um Secretary Austin make a general comment uh, at the press conference this week, I think he maybe was focusing on Iraq and Syria, but I think it also applies to Houthis, that basically these attacks would not be happening if it weren't for Iran's support. So, you know, we talked last week or or on Monday about this puppet master strategy, but literally you have Americans who are getting shot at, injured, and now horribly killed by Iranian-backed forces in Iraq, Syria, Jordan, Red Sea, um, and uh, and so by my definition that I set for that is an adversary is systematically trying to kill you. We are at war. And, you know, and the last comment is this is a dream scenario for any um, nation state or terrorist organization is to be at war with someone and have them not know it. <laughs> so so st- step one to respond effectively uh, in a crisis is to understand the reality of what's going on. And if Americans continue to sleepwalk through history uh, and through current events and not realize that we have a radical regime in Iran that uh, is uh, in its DNA, hateful and opposing of American and Israeli principles, values and interests and is taking, doing everything they can to kill us. And that is an ideal scenario for us to not realize that. And I'm sure they'd love for us to continue to sleepwalk. And Bill, that's one of the things I admire about you is for your whole career, you're you're calling uh, spades, spades, you're speaking the truth. And as I, I think I said on Monday, that's the essential precursor for effective policy is being honest about where we're at. And I believe we are currently in some form of war with Iran, whether we realize it or not.
0: Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, are we, do we have armies on the ground going toe to toe, exchanging blows? No, we don't. But what we have is a daily drumbeat of attacks from Iranian supported proxies whose goal is to drive us out of the Middle East and to deal a defeat to Israel. And, you know, it's, you know, sometimes wars are in the shadows, but this war is far out of the shadows at this point in time. Brad, what is the administration's reasoning for denying that we are not at war with Iran? Why would, why would, Secretary Austin, Secretary Blinken, President Biden make these claims when the American public, I think, look, everyone I speak to, I'm not talking people in the business, but your average person, you know, who knows what I do for a living and I get a lot of questions Sometimes, you know, Hey, you know, I, unfortunately I, I like to try to escape my work when I'm not working <laughs> and you That's know how that riot, is.
1: Right. You got to get yeah. That a little bit of it. yeah,
0: That's a good way because usually I go by myself and then yeah. nobody could ask me questions. No, yeah. but I, I, I don't mind answering. I don't mind having these conversations with the average person. And I'm sure you do as well. And I, I, all I get from people is confusion as to we're not at war with Iran, but what, what am I watching? And so, uh, you know, back to my question, what is the administration's motivation for denying what the average person on the street can recognize?
1: It's, boy, that that's a, a serious question once again, Bill. And I, uh, I uh, my best quick answer to that is that um, it goes to the heart of my two fundamental criticisms of for some time now of the Biden administration in terms of its Middle East policy. The uh, Biden administration, and, and dare I say, respectfully, President Biden himself, whom I had the opportunity as a Senate staffer to see up close during some portion of his time on the foreign relations committee, you know, good man, good intentions, good, some, you know, uh, trying to do the best he can. Uh, You know, John McCain made some comments about, you know, often wrong, but, you know, good intentions. Um, But I think he fundamentally, you know, when you, when you spend decades on the Senate foreign relations committee, I think sometimes, and and I was national security advisor Todd Young for a couple of years supporting his work on the foreign relations committee. When you're working on in in that capacity in a leadership role in that committee for so long, I think if you're not careful, there's a tendency to view everything solely through a nation-state, Westphalian perspective. And, 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 and I think um, Biden is confusing. I may have said this on Monday, a, a radical uh, um, ideological movement with the nation-state when it comes to Islamic Republic of Iran. So I think he fundamentally misreads our adversary in Iran, which sets him up for all kinds of subsequent policy mistakes. And his administration in its national security strategy, national defense strategy, says china is the number one threat therefore we need to do more in the indo pacific i agree i agree and that means we need to do a whole lot less in the middle east um and and um and so he wants to believe i think with perhaps good intentions that um that things are better than they are in the middle east and the last thing he wants understandably is a major war that's going to be resource demanding that especially in a, in a, during campaign season that's going to siphon off attention and resources from what we need to do elsewhere in the world as i think i said last week the problem is that we're at some form of war with Iran, as I just argued, that has been that is escalating whether we like it or not. The enemy has a vote and China is moving into the Middle East and China, Iran and Russia are cooperating more than ever. So that's not great. I don't love it. But let's just be truthful about it. So, um, you know, I give the administration high marks for its uh, providing weapons to Israel after October 7th, but very low marks for, for consistently from the beginning as our colleagues, Rich Goldberg, Mark Dubowitz, and others have highlighted, in speaking the truth about the terror puppet master in Iran, giving them essentially a free ride. And I think they're doing that for some of the reasons I just described.
0: Yeah, it seems this administration is going all out in de-linking the Iranian proxy strategy from the war between Israel and Hamas, and likely with Hezbollah. Well, actually, we could the war between Israel and Hezbollah as well in the north. And this is mistaken. The militias themselves, and I'm sure if you, you know, the the Iranians would would agree. They're they're telling us this. These wars are linked. The Houthis, especially, are very clear that, and as is the. What, what is known as the Islamic resistance in Iraq, which really is the conglomeration of the militias in both Iraq and Syria, the Iranian proxies—they're very, very clear that what they are doing is to support Hamas and is to get the U.S. to leave. And uh, I, you know, I—I I think he, President Biden and his administration fear that if they recognize. If they admit that the U.S. is at war with Iran, or Iran is at war with the U.S., I mean, the U.S. doesn't want to be at war with Iran, but it is. Uh, That's this is how war works. That it somehow will broaden this conflict, but this conflict has already been broadened, has it
1: not been, Brad? No, it's a great point. And you know, HR McMaster, who's chair of our our center on military and political power, a, a warrior scholar whom we both respect deeply,
0: absolutely wrote absolutely. in his
1: book um, um, "Battlegrounds" about uh, strategic narcissism, and and you know, I, I, it's it almost could be a non-alcoholic drinking game every time i bring this up but it's just it's so insightful um because i think it's true that so often kind of the reflexive tendency at least in the beltway if not more broadly among americans is to think that everything is about us and we don't always realize it when we do it um and, and it actually can sound very um cosmopolitan and sensitive and and sounds great when you're talking with europeans but when you boil down the essence of it, it's very arrogant and self-centered and navel-gazing that everything in the world is happening as a reaction to us. Um, and um, therefore, every problem can be solved by us changing what we're doing. And, and usually for the far left, that means an American military withdrawal. You know, there's no problem in the world that can't be solved by American military withdrawal. I'm being a little flippant, but you know, you take the point. But the reality is, as I think Putin reminded us on, in February 2022, um, with the largest invasion in Europe since World War II, as the Islamic Republic of Iran continues to remind us, is that, um, and as uh, Hamas reminded us with the worst slaughter of Jews, single day slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust, there are authoritarian bullies who will seize territory by force. Naked aggression is not a relic of the black and white news rules of the first half 20th century. It's still a real thing. Last time I checked, human nature hasn't changed. Bullies will be bullies and do everything they can that they believe they can get away with. See, See previous comments about deterrence. And there are still terrorists who hate us, despise us and wanna kill us. Boy, that sounds really depressing, but the good news is if we can understand that that's the reality, then we can start to construct better policies and stop all these self inflicted wounds
0: yeah, this is a a constant theme, something you and I discuss often, and we've discussed as well uh, in general at the at the long word journal i i that strategic that h r. McMaster's strategic narcissism it's one of those phrases um our friend thomas jocelyn has one of them uh, he calls it servile diplomacy we witnessed that in in afghanistan and and i think we're witnessing that with the administration's response to hamas right um we have american hostages for well over how many hundred and something days and we're talking about giving hamas a state again this you know it
1: doesn't get any more survival i start bill i start to get a little um I guess the plight where animated when I think about yes. this because, um, and, and I'll, I'll keep myself in check here, but um, you know, if you listen to some people in the Biden administration, they make it sound like we're doing Israel a favor here. Like, you no, know, Hey, okay. Maybe we'll continue to help them a little bit. Maybe we'll do, you know, because you know, they're, they're good allies, good partners. Yeah. Hamas is not great, but I mean, my Lord, as I've said before, Hamas is ideology. And as you know, far better than me, you and Tom um, uh, know far better Hamas comes, I say again, from the same sick ideological stream as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. You know, this is the same sick, perverse ideology that that gave us 9-11, that gave us beheadings from ISIS. Israel is fighting our common adversary, at great cost to itself, after an unprovoked attack and a war they did not want. Helping them is not charity, it's an investment. My goodness, it's an investment. And as I said on October 7th or 8th, I think the fundamental move in this moment following October 7th. Uh, I think what it was to give Israel the time, space and means it needs to destroy as much of Hamas as possible. And so there's more than one thing happening here. Right. Like so the the as, as you know so well and your listeners know as well, um, our adversaries don't have just one objective. Right. There's multiple objectives. They want to kick Iran wants American military forces out of the region, as we talked about on Monday, so that they can more effectively control, undermine their neighbors and advance their radical ideology. So that's one goal. They're always happy to kill as many Americans and Israelis as possible. And they want to increase the pressure, as we talked about, on the United States uh, and raise the cost for the ongoing military operations in Gaza. So we apply pressure, which we're seeing real time in the news day to day, in, to, where Washington's putting pressure on Israel to stop. The, that is fundamentally, I, I understand I, every civilian casualty. I, I mean, this isn't like some flippant thing I say to make sure I don't get criticized on the left. I, re, I mean, you know, every person's created in the image of God. Every civilian person that dies, every family is, is heart wrenching. But who do you blame? <laughs> who does one blame? You blame the terrorist organization that started the war and that uses human shields and that doesn't give a darn about the average Palestinians. You don't blame a military, as John Spencer and others have argued, that is taking extraordinary measures with some mistakes, absolutely with some mistakes, just like the American military makes, that's doing everything they can, including announcing, hey, Hamas terrorist organization, here's what our military operation is going to be, when and where over the next week. Who does that? Who does that? The Israelis do it. It's absolutely the insane. Defense Brad. forces do that. Do they get any credit in the New York Times from that? No, they don't. They don't.
0: They don't. And Brad, uh, feel free to be animated. Um, we, we, we like animation <laughs> here. Too
1: much caffeine, Bill. Sorry, uh, I've, I've had two cups already. I was up late. So.
0: <laughs> no, it, no, actually, no, look, we care about these topics. It's frustrating. It's, it's absolutely, what bothers me, look, the Americans being held hostage. This is an instance where the U.S. should, Put its foot down and say to Hamas, we understand you have an issue with Israel and we want our hostages freed before I take, before I even mention any discuss negotiations, try to intercede, whatsoever, free our hostages, or else you will pay a price from us. But we don't
1: how would we even know there's American hostage? The press won't even report on this anymore. Right. It reminds it's, me, Bill, of you know, like what you and I have talked about in the past, where we had successive administrations in Washington. That failed in presidents leading those administrations. I'm thinking Obama, uh, Trump, and Biden, who refused to explain to the American public why we what our interests were in Afghanistan. And if no one is taking the time to educate the American public, who is in you know busy with their lives about why something matters, then of course the top ten lists on, on their priorities are going to be all economic and domestic because no one's explaining to them why we should care. You know, and and, and um, I you know I mean adding to my list of who started this war, human shields, you know, all that stuff. I, you're right. I, I meant to mention the thing and you, you did it. It's like there are still Americans and Israelis being held hostage. So, you know, why instead of putting pressure on Israel, why don't we put pressure on Hamas to release all the hostage yes, yesterday uh, and surrender? You know, how about that? I mean, that sounds downright. Uh, you know, when at West Point, we as plebes we had to memorize quotes is, you know, there's the good old, uh, you know, MacArthur, you know, you can have fans or critics of MacArthur, we could have that historical debate, but there is no substitute for victory or the, you know, the the great patent quotes, boy, that that philosophy is long gone. There is no substitute for victory. We won't even mention when Americans being held hostage, raped and tortured in tunnels in Gaza, because, you know, because we're, I mean, mean, give me a break. I mean, it's how would you feel Bill, right now? If you're one of the family members of these hostages, whether it be American Israeli hostages, and you hear this administrate, you know, and, and here's the last thing I'll say. Sorry, I'm getting dialed down again. Less Never apologize, Brad. Go for it. <laughs> the the uh, Israeli, I mean, sorry, newsflash is, again, might lose cool points in Brussels, but the Israeli military operations in Gaza is what is creating the pressure on Hamas to negotiate. The uh, What? Shocking. Military operations create diplomatic leverage to accomplish objective. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? What is that good old uh, George Schultz quote, right? That, uh, you know, diplomacy without the shadow of power over the bargaining table is just appeasement. So if we want to empower the Israelis and ourselves at the negotiating table, you got to use military force. And last time I checked, the only ones using military force in Gaza right now is the Israel Defense Force.
0: Absolutely. You know, you bring up, you know, Patton. I, I go back. I'm a Sherman guy.
1: Oh, wow. I, wow. I, I see. Seriously. All right. You went there. Okay.
0: Yeah. No, listen, you win. the You fight the wars to win. You do what you must to win them. Now. But, you know, look, Brad, you serve in the military, right? I I served as well. Americans, if I was was serving right now, I would be so furious. This is the kind of thing we enlisted for. I enlisted, you took your commission for, right? To go get them and to to watch Americans being held hostage, there just must be so much frustration within the rank and file of the U.S. military and, and the inaction on this. I Again, I mean, you know, not to, you know, it's easy for me to say, Thirty years out out of the military, but this is the kind of thing I enlisted for, to risk my life for, to get you know to to save American citizens. It's just we we've, we've become a different country. It's very very uncomfortable. Maybe I'm I'm shifting the conversation a little too far, but
1: no, it's I think you're putting your finger on a fundamental thing, Bill. And I'm always happy to 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 talk about it. It's you know if someone listens flippantly or or certainly cynically, but just flippantly or just kind of is, has one ear on our conversation, you know they, they could maybe dismiss what I'm saying as you know. Okay, here's a guy sitting in the safety United States talking tough, you know, and and um and you know boy this guy you know uh, he he really wants war, you know. But I mean, give me a, but you know if you study history, if you look at the motives of our adversaries, it, it um it's just it's really this simple that we're going to get more of what we don't want with what this Biden administration is doing. It's just I mean it's that simple. And you don't believe me? See previous comment about 165 attacks since October 17th. And, you know, for for some in Washington um, sitting in safety and comfort, as I am now, you know, it's easy to talk about this and think that, you know, this is a game of Stratego or or checkers. But, you know, these are real lives. You know, in in an interview yesterday, I made the comment I was talking I was on DW talking to a German audience and they were, oh, here goes America about to escalate again. And and my point was, it's so interesting. I, I said this on BBC, too. It's so interesting how Europeans often. Um, really concerned about escalation. Only when America starts to respond, and and the metaphor I use is: if you're a homeowner and you're getting your home attacked 165 times, and every third attack you're saying, "Please stop! Please stop! Please stop!" When you finally respond to those 165 attacks, that's not escalation. That's common sense self-defense. And, and too late at that. You, what's that?
0: And too late at
1: that. Oh, right. And one of the best questions a reporter asked at the press conference this week with Secretary Austin. I actually tweeted this best you know best question of the day award. Award is why did we wait till Americans die to do what's necessary you know and for me that's like okay that's kind of intellectual policy wonkish, but imagine if you're the family members of those three heroes killed and you hear that right that's an empty seat at the kitchen table for for the rest of their lives so uh, there, there's a policy thing there there's an interesting thing there's principles here, and there's also uh life and death here and, and um and so um we should never 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 send people into harm's way or keep them in harm's way flippantly, and every life lost is a genuine tragedy among those who've raised the right hand and said, "Send me like you did, Bill." Um, and and we go, and, and that's why if you're going to leave 900 troops to make a little less ethereal and down there, if you're going to leave 900 troops in Syria, right? Because we don't want a resurgence of the ISIS caliphate, worthy, laudable policy goal. My goodness, as I said, I'm going to give them the means and the permission to defend themselves and to hit back hard. Before, not after, people start dying.
0: Absolutely, and Brad, I'm going to bring in uh, an analogy here. You had mentioned, you know, this is what happens when you do nothing. Look, out, and and it also speaks to are we at war? Right? In the early 1990s, Al Qaeda issues two fatwas that says it's at war against the United States and the and, and you know the Jews as well, the Israelis. Right? We do basically nothing. We ignore it. We get Kenya intent, you know we get a, 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 an attack. Or an attempted attack to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993, we get uh, pretty much ignore what's happening in Afghanistan. We get Kenya and Tanzania t- attacks on the embassies there, hundreds killed, mostly foreign nationals. Um, U.S. launches a meaningless strike against en- empty tents in the in, in Afghanistan. We get the USS Cole. Still, U.S. the uh, U.S. government doesn't take it seriously, and then we get 9/11. This is what happens. You know, when one side really doesn't want to take a threat seriously, doesn't want to escalate, doesn't want to do something about a threat that's there, you know, you get something like, you know, it, it just, it bothers me. And and yet somehow after 9-11, the U.S. became the aggressor here, and I could never figure that out. And it's the same, it's the same, we're seeing the same thing here. Was What was the escalation? The U.S. going or Israel going into Gaza, or was it October seventh?
1: I mean, right. these, these, really an escalatory move of Israel to go and try to get the people that committed October seventh. What a, what an escalatory move! You know, we really should criticize. I mean, give me a break. Give me It's, a break. it's. I mean, I mean, you know, you know, golden rule, right? Do unto others that you have done to you. I mean, you know, there, there's some foreign policy value of that concept. Like, and, and I find myself every time I'm doing a, an interview with some European media source. I don't know why I'm doing some European. I'm happy to talk with them, but it's like it's always. Like, can you just please take 30 seconds and have enough empathy to put the shoe on the other foot and ask yourself how the blank you'd respond if this was being done to you? You know, so I think, come on. I mean, both, with, both in the context of Israel and Hamas, in the context of our troops and sailors in the Red Sea and Iraq and Syria being in a shooting gallery.
0: Yeah, I've I done a couple episodes on BBC5. I'm surprised they actually had me come on because I <laughs> duked it out with the guest or oh. the host and was literally... You know, could not grasp the fact that Hamas could end this war today if it surrendered, if its leaders surrendered and it laid down its arms and, and dismantled its organization. If it wants to protect the Palestinian civilians, it can do that, but it won't. So why what is Israel that,
1: supposed to do? Why is that? As you know well, it's, not be, it's because their objective is the extermination of the state of Israel, not protecting the Palestinian people. And that is the fundamental reason, at risk of oversimplification, that you do not have a Palestinian state today. Because as Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, as you and Joe Trusman know so well, their fundamental goal is extermination of the state of Israel. And they put that above all else, including the well-being of the Palestinian people. And the goal of exterminating Israel is the primary reason why Palestinians have been suffering so much for decades and will continue to suffer until there's a broad, deep, wide realization among Palestinians, that Israel is in the Middle East and will remain in the Middle East, whether you like it or not.
0: Absolutely. And it's and, you know, you don't have to take Brad's word for it. It's in (laughs) it's in Hamas's (laughs) charter.
1: Definitely don't do that.
0: No, no, I mean, what Hamas says about Israel, it's in its charter that it wants the destruction of Israel. Exactly. Um, That's it just is. So, Brad, is there a reason? Can you justify why the U.S. may not have launched an immediate and meaningful strike against Iran, a response to the killing of American uh, soldiers, the three American soldiers last weekend.
1: Yeah. You know, if you had asked me, Bill, on Monday, like, you know, my best guess on timing, I, I think I probably would have said we would have seen something by now. So, uh, um, you know, as we sit here on Friday recording. So that's a tad surprising. I mean, they did say they make the comments early on at a time and place of our choosing. You you typically, you know, as someone who's to write talking points for politicians, you know, um, you know, you typically would say that if you're trying to give yourself space to take your time, um, and so that told me that okay, maybe it's not going to be tonight. And some of the sources I was talking to was okay, it's not going to be that the next night or within 24 hours. So I, I picked up pretty early for, from a variety of, for a variety of reasons that that it might take a while. And then we've also seen the comments that you know that this might be a you know I think a sustained campaign over multiple days. Um, you know, why is that? I, I see at least two reasons, Bill. Uh, one that is highly troubling to me. And one that is highly laudable. Right. And so once again, here we go with complexity. It doesn't it doesn't work well in a bumper sticker in the beltway. But OK, so here, here's here's the um, here's the one that is troubling. I worry that one of the motives is to give uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps members who, of course, have blood on their hands time to get out of dog to minimize the body count for fear of escalation and to give time to some of these militias in Iraq and Syria to do the same thing. When when you look closely at some of the attacks we've seen, there've been reports of vehicles pulling up before the American strike, the eight or nine few that we've seen. So I I, I do worry that one of the reasons bill for delay is that the Biden administration is trying to give the very people that you and I would want to target the time and space to get out of Dodge uh, for the purpose of not having too high of a body count so as to disincentivize a strong counterpunch to our strikes. I do worry that that's what's going on, that they would like to basically hit warehouses and maybe some ammunition stores and some things like that and and keep the body count kind of low, especially based on what Khatib Hezbollah has been saying uh, uh, since uh, Sunday. Um, So I do worry that that's part of the motive here. I don't have proof for that. That's informed conjecture, but it's consistent with um the DNA of, shall we say, of this administration uh, across time and across uh, decision making. Uh, the other reason for delay, um, the less nefarious one from my perspective, is that um, if you, as I may have mentioned on Monday, if you look at the uh, January 2020 uh, killing of long overdue belated laudable killing of Qasem Soleimani, speaking of blood on your hands, uh, American blood on your hands. Uh, how did the Iranians respond? They responded by sending, uh, I believe, more than a dozen missiles at to Iraqi bases uh, with where American troops were, and we had more than 100, tra- 100 traumatic brain injuries. So I hope that the Pentagon and, and U.S. Central Command is using this intervening period to increase our force protection measures and move in additional air and missile defense so that when the counterpunch comes which it almost certainly will, that we don't have additional casualties. So those are the two primary reasons I see for this. Well, and maybe a third, you know, if you really are going to do comprehensive serious strikes, that, you know, t- it takes a little time to put those together. But I think if you put all three of those things, reasons, one, logistical and mundane, second, nefarious, third, laudable, and put it in a, in a stew and stir, I think that explains uh, partly the, the delay we're seeing. What do you think, Bill?
0: No, Brad, I, I agree with that assessment. And, you know, one points two and three. If we are waiting um, to reinforce, well, there's already been 165 attacks, 164, whatever the number was. I think it was 162 before the US three U.S. soldiers were killed. Why weren't you reinforcing then? Why weren't you prepared for this? So this speaks to a level of either incompetence or unwillingness to do what needed to be done to provide these many cases exposed bases additional defense. And I, I, I find that to be astounding. And on your last point, um, if they're building a target list, I mean, I could have built that for them in, at least with targeting senior leadership. Of course, you got to find out who they are. The Pentagon plans for everything. They plan for an alien inv- invasion. Again, we've had 163 attacks before those three soldiers were killed. You weren't plan- You weren't prepared for the moment when the president comes to you and says, we need to deal with this problem. Again, I do agree. You may have some, the actual targeting, what to actually go at, or if you're going after individuals, obviously they move. If it's facilities, you could do those in a heartbeat. And then you go after individuals when you want to go after individuals, that's something you do over time. So, you know, those are, even if it's, you know, laudable, as you said, to reinforce those bases, to harden them from attack, this should have been done already.
1: I completely agree with you, Bill, and that's a great point. The first two were really my my the the explanations that had the most explanatory value from my perspective. The third, I guess, was me trying to be a little little, little generous. No, no, Brent. I, I know you understand these things. I'm just yeah, yeah, really no, no, yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I completely agree with you. And and, um, if I were still working in the Senate, you know, particularly for a member of the Armed Services Committees or the Intelligence Committees or the Foreign Affairs Committees, one of the questions I'd be sending emails about to the OSD legislative liaison and and calling the people up into the hill into the uh, the skiff to provide a Mm -hmm. briefing on is every time we hit a facility with weapons in it, which we did um, the administration finally did is you ask the question, how long did we know that was there? Right? Because after we hit it, they, they, you know, they say from the Pentagon press podium and we hit this facility with weapons in it and those weapons were being used to attack our troops. And yet I don't see anyone asking the obvious follow-up is how long did we know that was there? How many attacks on our troops are being resourced from that facility with those weapons, and we failed to act? And please answer you, me, why we didn't hit it sooner. Boy, if I were some of these family members with someone with a traumatic brain injury, I would want my my senator, my congressperson on the relevant committee to be asking that question. So, you know, hey, a hey, hey, congressional staff listening, when this this big counterattack comes, you know, you can you literally draft your questions now. Oh, you hit this base? Oh, you hit that warehouse? You hit that weapon stockpile? Nice job. How long did we know that it was there? When did you first learn? Oh well, and Hot. No, tell me when you first knew. Oh, you don't want to say it unclassified and it's open hearing. Fine, come into the skiff and tell me. And, the, uh, and, and and I mean that is just basic, basic Article One, Section Eight, Branch of Government oversight. I, I hope people are asking that. I don't know if they are.
0: Yeah, you know, I, you know what took you so long, and and that's really the, That's really what we're asking here. You know, it gets back to the administration doesn't want to be at war with Iran, even if Iran is at war with us. What do you think a response will look like and what should it look like?
1: I think the danger here is weakness for this administration, not strength for all the reasons we've been discussing. Um, I, I, um, as I said on Monday, I think the burden of proof should be on anyone who says that we shouldn't hit every IRGC facility in Syria at a minimum. Every known IRGC location should be blown up, in my opinion, at this point, um, especially now that, you know, from a Biden administration's perspective, all the personnel are gone. Right. Don't worry yeah. about escalation because you're not going to kill anyone. Because they're yeah, all gone Then all. why even hit those facilities if they're not even there? I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, if, if there are weapons there, they're going to be yeah. later used to kill Americans. True. Then, I mean, to me, that's a no brainer. I mean, good point. Good point. Empty warehouse. Who cares? Um, you know, so I'm not interested. I mean, you know, I was about to say this earlier. I mean. Sometimes Americans, including myself, I'm being guilty of it right now. We talk too much, a lot of talk and a lot of not action. It's like, you know, that's one, and that's another thing I admire about the Israelis is maybe a little more doing, a little less talking. But yeah, I mean, every, I mean, basically, I would say it this way every weapons cache in Syria uh, should be, we should blow up. And I mean, I mean, er, I mean, every one of them. Try to not hit the Russians if you can, you know, that'd be bad. But, you know, every weapons cache in Syria. Um, I, I, you know, Iraq presents some dilemmas, uh, you know, because that, that you understand well. Um, I think maybe in this moment you risk that and, and you just say, hey, sorry, sorry, Iraqi prime minister. I know this creates political pressure on you. I know we got these conversations about future U.S. force posture, but 165 times three Americans are not coming home with their families. Uh, you know, sorry, we had to take some steps in Iraq as well. Um, and frankly, um, uh, another question that I hope congressional staff is asking is, you know those Iranian vessels in the Red Sea. Yeah,
0: You're reading my mind. Are
1: they providing information? Have they at least once? Here's you, know, you got wording matters, right? Because people will find any little way to weasel out of the question, right? Has there been at least one instance in which an Iranian naval vessel, Iranian Navy or IRGC, you know, you know whatever, Iranian naval vessel has, or or any anything floating <laughs> anywhere near Yemen has <laughs> a dinghy, a dhow, a boat, a skiff, you know? Whatever. A guy with flippers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on the water, under the water, above the water, has provided tracking information on commercial vessels or, God forbid, U.S. naval vessels that the Yemen, the, the Houthis have used to try to kill Americans, civilian or military. Has that happened at least once? If the answer is yes, then that douse um, boat, ship, vessel, dinghy, raft should be on the bottom of the sea. Period. Why? You don't need an AUMF, Authorization for Use of Military Force. You don't need a Declaration of War. Constitutional fans out there, Article 2, Section 2, Commander-in-Chief, Force Protection, they attacked us. It's, it's the very justification we're using right now for these attacks. We're blowing things up in Yemen. What, under what authority? It's basically Article 2, Section 2, Force Protection, under that very same authority. Completely constitutional. Sorry, Chris Murphy, you can't criticize it. Uh, we should be able to sink those things because they are threatening our forces. Uh, I, I would, I, I would put the if I were the president, I would put the burden of proof on anyone telling me I should not do that. And by the way, history tells us, and, and I mentioned on, on Monday, when the U.S. Navy shows up, the Iranians back down. Maybe this time they're feeling saucy because you know what's going on in Gaza. They they want to pick a little fight. Okay, well that's let's make this that the worst day that they've remembered. You know, so um, I think if we're Admiral Mark Montgomery were on, he might uh, tell us that um, what I'm suggesting is eminently doable. And there are a lot of um, naval officers that would relish the opportunity.
0: So what do you think it will look like?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now come back to reality. Uh, uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. Yeah, the normative versus the uh, reality. Should <laughs> versus uh, reality. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of warehouses getting blown up that may or may not be empty. Uh, few to people in it. Lots in Syria, as my best guess. Uh, maybe some in Iraq. Uh, maybe some cyber attacks in Iran, maybe that we don't claim credit for. Um, uh, you know, what, what's the motive? Maybe a better way to answer it, What's What's Biden's motive right now? It is to immunize himself and his administration in this campaign season against accusations that he is weak. Some Republicans are going to say that no matter what. Of course they will. But to make, you know, to basically not give them an easy opening for saying he's weak. So it needs to appear strong. So he wants to appear strong, appear like he's doing something, but not do so much consistent with the provocation premise that is the bane of this administration. You know, worrying about provoking our adversaries, by the way, who are already doing bad things or already provoked, um, uh, without incurring uh, so much damage against our adversaries that, in his mind, that brings uh, additional attacks. They want to, he wants to give himself political cover and home, s- reduce or stop the attacks on our forces without inviting stronger escalation. And I think in their minds, that means lots in Syria a little bit in Iraq, some cyber attacks, maybe in Iran that we do or don't claim credit for maybe one or two other things. That's my best guess. Bill, I could be wildly wrong, but as I see her right now, that's what I think. What do you think?
0: No, I, I I agree. I would, might add, you might get a mid level militia commander or or, whacked. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, look, uh, you know, as we, we talked about, uh, um, you know, servile diplomacy. And, uh, you know, here's another word, a friend of mine, whose name, I can't mention, unfortunately, cause I want to give him full credit. What you just described, he describes as performative operations. Yeah. I thought that that was absolutely yeah. the perfect adjunct to servile diplomacy, yeah. you know, doing something to me that looks good, looks like you're doing something, but doesn't really get to right. the heart of the problem. Right. So.
1: right. And Bill, if, if your listeners buy what we, you and I were saying last time we talked, that some of these adversaries are so sincere in their ideological hatred for us, that they're, if they don't have missiles, they're going to throw uh, rocks and, and sticks at us. Then if you believe that, and I believe that's 100% accurate, that a certain subset of our adversaries, of course, have that ideological view, then someone who's being serious, you know, talking respectfully to the president and his administration right now, should focus on these attacks and depriving them of the means of murder. And 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 that's easier said than done because there are a lot of rocks in Syria. But I mean, I, I so I mean, if we know of any weapons cache that any of these groups have, if we decide not to target that and a future American is an American is injured in the future or killed, God forbid, by a weapons cache that we knew existed and did not target, then I, I think that gets into um, um, I think there are moral implications of that decision. And so I'm not I'm not getting the classified briefs. I don't know the target list. But you know i sure gosh darn hope that if there's a weapons cache of iranian proxies in iraq and syria that we hit it and we and we destroy it completely yeah and you know you mentioned you know
0: you know what you said just said there and i wanted to bring this up when we talked on monday as well it brings me makes me think of the taliban a taliban commander you know like you said they'll they'll use what they have and he made a comment well over a decade ago the leader Jamat al-ahar he had said suicide bombers are our nuclear weapons. And that always stuck with me. It's they'll use what they have. In their case, they'll strap a bomb to someone and send them to take out as many people. And that that is absolutely correct. And how do you get to that? You how do you stop that? Well, you try to prevent it. If we're not going after the root cause of the problem, if we're not going after Iran's desire to and, and its ability which is providing these malicious weapons and money and training and, um, and intelligence and all, you know, and the advisors and all of those things. If we're not working to take that out, we're, we're merely conducting performance operations. So yeah. no, it's well said. It, the, let's turn to the Houthis. I'm really glad you mentioned that ship's called the, I believe it's called the Bashad. And there's a two, I think there's one or two other Iranian vessels. And one of those attacks, uh, it was against two Maersk uh cargo container ships um that are used to transport US military um equipment. The um it was reported that that Bashab was mirroring the movement of the ships, not only as they were trying to transit into the Red Sea, but as it transited out of the Babel Mendeb Strait and into the Gulf of Aden, which Look, I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to know this this the ship looks like a cargo ship, but parks itself in the Red Sea and just moves north and south. And there's no you know, I don't even at this point, Brad, I don't even need intelligence, classified intelligence to know what this ship is doing. It should be at the bottom of the ocean. But I'm sure the class it's been leaked in the uh it hasn't been named explicitly but the wall street journal had a great report on this and it's been known for years that the ship is doing exactly that it was doing something similar in a previ- previous conflict when the houthis were targeting but to the houthis um the u.s put together operation prosperity guardian which is the defensive operation to get the ships to transit you know through the red sea Bab and up straight and through the gulf of aid and trying to keep uh going the offensive mission um what has that, that did kind of have a name, did it not, Brad? I, I read that somewhere. Do you know what the name of that is? It was something like Poseidon Archer. Or oh something?
1: yeah, yeah. I forget the name, but yeah, it was it was something uh, um, very very saucy. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. I love the ran, I, the random name operation yeah. name. I want to know who has that job. I mean, if, if I think it's, it's a computer. I think it might it just, be my retirement gig to be the person sits in the bed. right next to that big red button we talked about last week. You got to have a sidekick sitting there coming up with all these cool names, right? I I, th- I think it's I think it's a computer. They push a button and oh. it takes about 45 minutes to generate. Are we talking AI generation here for these names? Or
0: no, I think it's I think it's way older than that. There has to be like dials and knobs. On those IBM yeah, exactly. It's like you could hear it chugging along. With
1: the AL dial up.
0: Exa- yeah, it's exactly. <laughs> it puts a telegraph out to all the commands and then it goes Operation, Operation Prosperity, Prosperity Guardian. Guardian. And everyone's like, yes! Well, anyway, so let's talk about those two missions. What is happening with Operation Prosperity Guardian and the other mission whose name escapes? Yeah. Me?
1: So, you know, this this um, this uh, response by the Biden administration with Operation Prosperity Guardian plays right into President Biden's sweet spot uh, related to what I've saying earlier about, um, you know, him valuing diplomacy, something and valuing allies, two things that I value as well, not for ends, ends in themselves, but means. Um, and so. Um, What what they did uh, they they used the existing U.S. led combined maritime forces and the existing combined task force 153 that focuses on those same bodies of water Um, and uh, and used that basically to get a running start on the command and control and logistics for this operation Prosperity Garden. There are currently 22 nations supporting it, um, 17 of which have publicly acknowledged their participation. I'll listen real quick for the uh, the C-SPAN geeks like me. uh, Listen in Australia, Bahrain, Canada. Denmark, Ecuador, France, Greece, Italy, Kenya, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Seychelles. Am I saying that right? Singapore, Sri Lanka, the United Kingdom and the US. So there's your list. So do the math. Um, 17 minus 22. uh, Math in public is dangerous. That's five. So five countries are participating that don't want to be named. Hmm, Who are they? That's the the mystery question of the day. Um, Who's not on that list? I may have mentioned this last time. Egypt and Saudi Arabia, that we could spend three hours talking about that. Hmm, does Egypt have an interest in the Red Sea and the Suez Canal? Just a little bit. Did they lead Combined Task Force 153 for six months ending last year? Yes, they did. But this goes right to the heart of what Iran's regional strategy is, and that is trying to divide Americans and Israelis and Arabs to keep us divided and distracted as a means of subversion and control. And the fact that Egypt and Saudi Arabia, when their core economic and security interests are so at stake, don't want to be publicly associated with a solely defensive operation to protect international shipping in one of the world's four or five most important maritime choke points really tells you a lot about the continued willingness of Arab governments to play right into the Islamic Republic of Iran's strategy.
0: You know, and Brad, I mean, you know, people will celebrate 22 nations, 17 named. I look at that list and say, where is everyone?
1: Right. Um, now, I just met with some uh, some folks from London, some, some, Brit- some British folks from the uh and um you know i i i I don't think i'm divulging anything because i'm saying what i said to them but i say hey thank you for having i think i use the word spine thank you for having the spine to be the only country helping us schwack this iranian-backed houthis in yemen who are conducting this extraordinary attack on maritime shipping right so you know the british aren't perfect but god bless the british in this moment being willing to put their money where their mouth is at least a little bit to stand with us in our moment of need and going after the the houthis not enough you know we can criticize the attacks but my gosh they're doing a lot better than a lot of other European powers invite. Does Europe speaking, I talk about Egypt and Saudi Arabia's interest in Red Sea shipping. Does Europe have an interest in Red Sea shipping? Oh my goodness, yes, they do.
0: Bar, everything that's moving through the, the Suez Canal, most of that's going to Europe. A lot of that is Asia, going to Asia, Europe. That's
1: the that's unless you want to go Cape of Good Hope. That's the Asia-Europe connection. So I, you know, I mean, where's the where's the European Union? And I yeah, think this... European Union, yeah, we flashed we published a flash, FDD published a flash brief on this week mm-hmm. um um talking about this and retired Mark Montgomery put a quote in there. I did too. And, and I think if my memory serves, my central my attempt at insight there was, the EU um, doesn't want to be perceived as missing in action uh, when their core economic and national security interests are under threat uh, in the Red Sea. so they have to do something, but they don't want to be associated too closely with what the United States is doing because, you know, those wild cowboy Americans are actually trying to blow up the missiles before they're launched. Imagine that. So this is a way of being perceived as doing something but dissing themselves, at least nominally, from uh, um, uh, uh, American offensive strikes. My response to that, of course, is, hey, look at your own self-interest, Europe. And also Operation Prosperity Guardian is explicitly and solely defensive. And, and the Pentagon has bent themselves in pretzels to make that point. But uh, that, that doesn't matter, because if you get too close to those wild and crazy Americans, oh, my goodness, the bad guys might target you, too. So let them do the hard work. You look like you're doing something. you know. So they'll, one, two, three weeks from now, the foreign ministers will finally sign it off some Brit- some so, not British, excuse me, some European vessels and aircraft will show up. Some of them will be good faith, adding serious value. Um, and will they be integrated, as Mark Montgomery made the point, and I did as well in the flash brief, will they, if not nominally, in the day-to-day operation of trying to protect shipping, will they integrate themselves, this EU effort, with Operation Prosperity Guardian? If we're interested in actually protecting shipping and solving and addressing the problem, the answer is yes. If they don't, then that tells you that we're, we're looking at more political gamesmanship and press releases here than actually trying to address the problem. And
0: I, th- I think this is where the Iranian victory, I think a lot of these countries are concerned about being linked because the Houthis particularly are stating that they're conducting these attacks on Israeli ships, Israeli yeah, owned or exactly. chartered ships, as yeah. well as US. So they don't want to be linked. Be- right. And this is this is where I look at this as just a massive propaganda victory for Iran and for its allies. Um, they've They've succeeded in driving a wedge between the U.S., Saudi Arabia, and Egypt. It's it's really stunning. Now, uh, op, it is it is called Operation Poseidon Archer. So, I, I, oh,
1: there I it is. Yeah, cool name. Cool. Yeah. Kudos yeah. to the uh, the computer or the person who came up with that. I like. Yep. it.
0: Love it. Great, great, great job, Pentagon. Random wow. operation. Well, you could t
1: shirts built for that. I, I'd buy one. I'd buy one for that. That's cool.
0: It's great. I love it. Um, so that is the as you mentioned, that's the offensive mission. So I believe there's six countries involved with that, with only two. I think it's the I don't have the, the list here in front of me. Um, but I know Canada was involved. I think the Netherlands and if I, I'm probably getting this wrong, so I was gonna stop there. Of course, the US and Britain. Um, but the US and Britain are the only ones providing military muscle. So this is the opera, and again, the operate this is the one when you read about strikes.
1: I think you got it mostly right there, Bill, completely right. Yeah. So you got U.S. and U.K. doing the actual blowing things up. And then you got Australia, Bahrain, Canada, the Netherlands, and, and maybe one or two others in the mix as well. Yeah. And, and
0: again, like you could only muster six, seven, eight countries to take offensive operations against- how many
1: Arab uh, countries on that list? Bahrain, with, oh, headquarters of our fleet there. Yeah. yeah. Interesting.
0: It, it really is interesting. Again, this is where I go, boy, has Iran just exposed oh. the divisions, countries and their Arab allies it really is a stunning Iran, I, I tell you they it's almost brilliant what they've done here we're going to see the results look if hamas is defeated um if they really do suffer a military defeat in Atikor, and aren't able to take or and you know we all have questions about what, what does gaza look like after the end of U- uh, i'm sorry end of israeli military operations but um, if Hamas is able to survive in some way and everything that we've witnessed with the militias in Iraq and Syria and attacks in Jordan as well, and what's happened in the Red Sea, the Iranians have to be licking their chops at what they've been able to pull off here. What do you think?
1: I agree. I mean, just, um, you know, uh, normal we, by all accounts, as far as I can tell, and talking with a variety of folks, we were getting closer to Saudi-Israeli normalization that that's been postponed. I think it's in America's interest to see that go forward, obviously, in Israel and Saudi Arabia's interest. Um, Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran is loving that delay. That's a nightmare for them to have normalization between Saudi and Israel. That's good. for It would be good for regional security, bad for the the, the bad guys in Iran. Um, I've been writing and speaking for a while now about the need for a combined security architecture. U.S.-Saudi-led security architecture include as many Gulf Cooperation Council countries as possible, where we move toward a single pane of glass, if you will, in terms of seeing threats. Um, air and Missile Defense, uh, you know, the uh, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense, Dana Stroll, and others were in, were in um, Riyadh, um, uh, you know, a, a year or so ago, pushing this forward. The, the uh, NAFSA has been working on this really laudable effort that allows us to more effectively see the bad things Iran is doing in, in land, uh, and air, sea, and land and integrating those American, Arab, and yes, dare I say, eventually Israeli efforts, combined radio security architecture, that's the, that's the very thing that the Islamic Republic of Iran does not want. And all of those conversations, because of what the Iran-backed Hamas terrorist organization did on October 7th, in addition to the horror for the peoples involved and, and the gravity of the issue for Israel and for Americans that I've been arguing, it's also made those conversations with many of our Arab partners about that security architecture more difficult. If we're just being honest, that is the truth. But here's the question for any Arab partners listening is, You know, do you agree with me that it is in our interest to build that security architecture? Yes or no? The answer is yes. It is absolutely in your interest. It's in our interest. You know it. You know the real threat to regional security is not Israel. It's the Islamic Republic of Iran. You said that to us for decades behind closed doors. Bahrain and UAE finally had the courage to say it out loud in the Abraham Accords, what they've all been saying privately for decades. Now let's put our money our mouth is. yeah, we got some disagreements and challenges related to Gaza, but let's move forward not only on normalization. Let's move forward on this regional security architecture. You can issue those press releases that you need to issue, but let's get busy behind the scenes building this because that'll make you, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, safer. And let's bring the Israelis in because that's going to truly bring us closer to the regional security we want and make Iran, uh, make it more difficult for them to hide their aggression and get away with it. Yeah. And that's, you know, Brad,
0: excellent points. And that's one of the, another one of the major successes of what has transpired since October 7th. The Iranians effectively sabotaged the Abraham Accords, um, at least for the short, and I would probably argue for the short and midterms. Um, you know, but we'll see. Uh, but that, you know, even delaying that is is quite the win um, they got. That that was a big threat to the Iranians. Um, let's. Uh, let a, oh, I want one quick observation on side and Archer as well. Um, there's been either two or three attacks where both the U.S. and British participated in, but there's also been a string. Of attacks just claimed by CENTCOM that appear to be outside of the scope of not maybe not necessarily outside of the scope of Poseidon Archer, but near daily the U.S. is like hitting a missile on the launch pad or shooting down a drone, and these are being claimed by by the U.S. by U.S. Central Command solely. I found that interesting that it isn't being claimed under Prosperity. Um, I'm sorry, uh, Poseidon Archer. Uh, they had to create two operations with the P to begin with the first word. Great. Um so yeah so we got to get to fix that on the uh, random operation name generator at the yeah. Pentagon please. Yeah
1: no it's yeah my my research tells me that um uh o- o- over the time period since roughly November 19th or so um that uh the US and our partners have shot down more than 80 items items being a non technical term for <laughs> drones and missiles ballistic and cruise 80 um and, and so that's that's something and and, and also obviously that's defensive, right? When that, that's inbound, and then the offensive strikes that you're referencing. Yeah, uh, you know, as a lot of your listeners know, we've been what have we been hitting? We've been hitting uh, the launch sites, the, the facilities associated with those launch sites, coastal radars, air surveillance capabilities, weapon storage areas, that sort of thing. Clearly, not effectively enough to stop the attacks. Easier said than done, of course. I don't want to be uh, dismissive of the challenges there, um, but as I've been um, um, saying for years now, honestly. Um, and, and have said uh, on other instances and may have said on Monday that if you just focus on hitting what's the, the offensive threats in Yemen and you don't focus on Iranian weapon smuggling, it's it's just like that homeowner cleaning up puddles, but ignoring the leak in the roof. And this is going to be a perpetual conflict. And the very kind of thing that you've talked about through the years, Bill, it's like, you know, do it right, get it done or, you know, or, or figure out a new a new approach. So a serious approach. Uh, and I have some reason to believe that the Pentagon is looking at this, we'll see whether they give CENTCOM permission and the means to actually do it, a serious approach to interdicting as much as possible Iranian weapon smuggling to the Houthis. And and again, as Secretary Austin said in the press conference, I think he might've been referring to Iraq and Syria, maybe the Houthis. These would be difficult. A lot of these attacks would be difficult if it were not for the support of Iran. So if the Secretary of Defense is saying that, Newsflash! Big idea, brilliant. How about we try to inter- do a better job of interdicting the flow of those weapons? That means capacity, that means capability, and the big thing that we often lack—it means political will.
0: Yeah, and I, and I would add to that: Why don't you make the price to Iran so high that it doesn't want to? You don't right. have to interdict. Yeah. You know, but there's Bill, that as Bill, well.
1: Bill, Bill, come back to reality now. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I, I'm, I, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna. You You did it to me. Now I'm doing it back to
0: you. Yeah, the no, good point. We'll Your to good to point. Reality. I gotta stop. I always gotta remind myself that, like, yeah, come on. Um. You know, it's, I always get asked, like, well, what would you do? And it's like, I don't really advise people policy that no one's going to execute. That's just stupid. No, I mean, granted, I will give my opinion about what we do, but I recognizing that things like that are just unrealistic, at least under this administration. So, well, Brad, um, you talk to a lot of people, I'm sure people within the military, guys you served with, um, as well as, you know, you spent a lot of time on the Hill as well. What is your general sense uh, uh, of the mood um about the administration's actions or lack thereof to respond to these attacks to meaningfully deal with these threats
1: yeah my and not attributing my comments to anyone in particular, but just based on talking with a variety of folks you know my my feeling and my feeling alone is that um it's safe to assume for uh, folks listening that there's not everyone I don't want to paint with too broad a brush but there's a there's a frustration that um that our folks are being attacked and um, they're being injured and and now they're being killed. Um, And that, um, uh, that this administration is not giving the permission required to do what's necessary to change the cost benefit analysis of our adversaries, which anyone knows is simply going to invite more of the same. So that's, um, that's my, the general vibe I'm picking up. And I'm not trying to say every person in every position feels that way, but that's, that's the vibe I'm getting in this moment, Bill, to answer your question directly.
0: Yeah, Brad, that frustration, that's the perfect word to describe what I'm hearing um, from individuals within the military, the within the defense establishment in general. I don't talk to a lot of people on the Hill, um, but also within uh, intelligence services as well. Uh, they're just, you know, sh- they're not shocked at how we got here, but they're frustrated that the administration just doesn't seem to understand that there's real people on the other end of this. Uh, that are absorbing blows and they're just not seeing any movement. La- last question, Brad, uh, the United Nations uh, Security Council's analytical support and sanctions and monitoring team issued a report on Al Qaeda and the Islamic State. Uh, the, uh, our friend and colleague Edmund Fitton Brown uh, and Caleb Weiss and I, we just recorded a podcast on that today. It should be up on sometime Monday. Um, but there is one point in there that I just wanted to quickly discuss this with you because, you know, we – both of us followed the the withdrawal U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and you know this is I hate you know I know you hate this as well. I hate saying I told you so. I hate saying we predicted this, but we did. And what the U.S. the UN report focused on this part portion focused on Afghanistan. I wanted to mention Al Qaeda is now running ten uh, training camps in ten of Afghanistan's thirty four provinces. So it, prior to this report, it was running six or training camps in six provinces. So they identified four more provinces and eight more camps. They did say some of them may be transitory. Al Qaeda is running madrasa madrasas, which are religious schools to educate youth in five provinces. It is running a bay. It's created a base to quote stockpile weaponry End quote um, in, in Panjshir province. This was the, the base of the national resistance front an anti-Taliban movement. That's been largely defeated. So, I think there's some symbolism there as well as the where I'll kind of put that, as well as a facilitation network into Iran. So it has uh, safe houses along the border, three provinces along the border that are being used. Brad, are you shocked by any of this?
1: I'm not, Bill, sadly. And I say that with no glee. I, I, I um, think tank dorks like me will say, you know, I, I really wish I were wrong. And, and sometimes I mean, sometimes I, I, I really do wish I were. I really wrong do. This, too. But um for sure. Again, we're not talking about a game of risk or Stratego here, but, um, you know, I, in April 2021, like a week or two after Biden's big announcement that, you know, that we were going to withdraw based on a, on the calendar and not conditions on the ground, um, you know, I, I, I did a piece of Washington Post saying, you know, mission not accomplished. You know, just going back to my theme, you know, good policy starts with an objective assessment of reality and talked about, you know, frankly, leaning heavily on the great work of the Longmore Journal and you and Tom um, about, Uh, you know, just exposing the charade, the Trump administration and Biden administration charade about, you know, relying on the Taliban as an anti-Al Qaeda partner. So, I mean, anyone who spends about 30 seconds on Wikipedia with the Taliban or or reads like one long war journal article among the thousands you guys have published uh, understands that the Taliban never was and never will be a partner, a genuine real partner against Al Qaeda uh, because they're attached at the hip and they had been for years. Um, and that was the insanity of the Trump administration, Secretary Pompeo deal with the Taliban and, 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 um, and one of the fundamental um, um, uh, mistakes and misunderstandings of the Biden administration that took the bad hand, the Trump administration dealt them and made it even worse. So, um, so if you read what you guys were saying and what I was saying then and what meant several others, but not a lot, but some people were saying, it, you, you asked us, what would Afghanistan look like? after an American withdrawal, where you have the the Afghan government fall and the Taliban calling the shots, what would you predict the posture of Al-Qaeda would be? And it would be some version of what you just described. And what really kind of annoys me, Bill, and I won't go too much uh, down this, but um, then you have, then so expect, here's here's the press releases you should expect, as someone who used to help with press releases in the U.S. Senate, uh, here's the press releases you should expect in the Senate. Um, You should have a lot of offices uh, decrying you know, the horrible human rights, humanitarian conditions in Afghanistan and the plight of women in Afghanistan, which I, I, I completely am concerned about too. But my response to that is, what the blank did you expect when the Afghan government fell and the Taliban took over? You expect al-Qaeda to have safe haven with which to train and to conduct attacks on us and our partners. And you would expect a rolling back or an end of all the gains made on human rights and, and women's rights in these issues. And the very same people who are most upset now about the plight, the horrible, sad, tragic plight of women in Afghanistan, in most cases, are the very same ones who are most calling for a withdrawal. So, I, um, right on that
0: point, that was the most ironic thing I've ever seen covering this. And there's been a lot of it, but that one, you expected the Taliban to improve human rights of women? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no,
1: no. I, I, I'm, I, this is the student talking to the master on these issues. You, you and Tom, I mean, you guys were the ninjas on this for so many years, and I lean so heavily on your research, but, um, you know, just, I mean, if you're going to say like two things about the Taliban, like, you know, if, after you spend those 60 seconds on Wikipedia, I think you say they're not going to be an anti Al Qaeda force. That's the first thing you say. The second you're going to say is it's not going to be good for women's rights. <laughs> <It's, yeah. laughs> Maybe the two things you say, and they'd like to kill as many of us and our partners as possible. Maybe that's a third. If you'll give me three.
0: Yeah. And they're so, not moderate. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. Which goes so, to the women's rights so, thing, right? Yeah. I know. I
1: just, you know, so, so, um, you know, at a time when we have our hands full with China, we have our hands full with Russia, we have our hands full with Iran, we have our hands full with North Korea. Oh my gosh, here's this Brad and Bill guy talking about Afghanistan. I thought that was in the rearview mirror. Give me a break. We we can't even handle China, much less these other four or five things, right? It, listeners might be forgiven for feeling that way. I kind of feel that way. But again, you know, uh, we don't do ourselves our security any favors by sticking our head in the sand and acting like threats don't exist. And so, kudos to you for uh, for speaking the truth um because that's the way you avoid another 911 by speaking the truth and speaking in advance and before Americans are killed kind of a theme here in our conversation.
0: Brad I just I just wish they would listen to us and I you know <laughs> sometimes I, they do. I don't,
1: not always sometimes I,
0: they do. I I you know look I I'm not an in uh, you know infallible for for certain but on these issues these these were just I don't really think you needed a PhD to understand what was going to happen here this was obvious and, you know, as you mentioned, both the Trump and the Biden administration, they just, I, you know, I have no other way to say it anymore. And I'm done mincing words. They lied to us to justify a withdrawal from Afghanistan. They told us Al Qaeda was no longer uh, connected to the Taliban. The relationship had been broken. They told us that the Taliban would moderate. They told us that Al Qaeda doesn't even have, you know, has an insignificant presence in Afghanistan. And here we are, two, almost what, three years, three years later, two, two and a half years later. Whatever the number is, my head's still spinning from that. Um, And al-Qaeda is in a better position today in Afghanistan than it was pre-9-11 because they have a state that is run by the Taliban to back them.
1: Yeah, Bill, and as we learned and as you guys covered in Longworth Journal and and I did a little bit as well, when a terrorist organization controls territory, that gives them access to resources. And those act, those resources uh, allow them to get weapons and do training and, and do all kinds of things that make them more formidable. And so it's one thing if you know you're hiding in caves, you're worried about getting bombed, your heads down, you're more worried about survival than attacking the World Trade Towers. But when when you're no longer having to hide in the caves and you control territory and you have the tools of government at your disposal and and the revenue associated with that, that makes it particularly concerning. And that's exactly what we have. Predictably, predicted and predictable and predicted in Afghanistan, an Al-Qaeda Taliban terrorist syndicate with a safe haven. By the way, watching right now how the US responds to what's happened in Iraq and Syria, and will make, I predict, their calculations on whether to come after us based on their perception of whether we're in retreat and decline or whether we still have spine and the determination to defend ourselves and our core interests. Beijing's watching. Moscow's watching, Tehran's watching, Pyongyang's watching, and gosh darn it, so is Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. And what they conclude matters, and we better think about what they're going to, uh, how they're going to conclude based on what we do or don't do in the coming days in the Middle East.
0: Yeah, Osama bin Laden said after 9/11, you know, we're going to find out if America is the strong horse or the weak horse, and he predicted that we're the weak horse. He had said it then. If he was alive today, I could only imagine what he would be thinking, observing our inaction or. Performance operations in the Middle East at this moment, as we're under attack, as we're weakening on our support for Ukraine. Uh, you know, this is this is a moment. Um, and you know, I, I don't predict good things coming out of this. Brad, it was a real pleasure to have you on today. I'm gonna get you back on soon. Always enjoy our conversations. Again, thank you for coming on, taking your time to, to have a conversation with me.
1: Bill, I I consider you a a friend and a leading expert on these issues. And after your listeners have heard from me twice in one week, they're probably going to need a little bit of a break. But after we have that break, I'd be happy to come back on. So thank you so much.
0: I think people will be happy to get you back on. You are a friend, a great colleague. Looking forward to having these conversations as we go forward. So much to talk about. And thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can listen to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to Generation Jihad and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again soon.